right, well, tonight we are back in Philippians chapter 2, so go ahead and turn there. We have, the last two weeks, been finishing up Paul's exhortation to the Philippians towards unity and that they should consider one another as more significant than themselves, that they should do all things without grumbling or disputing, that they should rely upon Christ, who is their righteousness, who is their only merit, as he is our only merit, to stand before God. Looking in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be covering quite a bit of text tonight, starting in verse 19 and working our way through the end of the chapter. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I shortly will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Righteous Father, May you be glorified by the preaching of your word tonight. May you be glorified in the hearts of the hearers, Lord. May you be glorified by the repentance of your saints. May you be glorified by a desire to walk in imitation of Christ, following after the example he has set for us, enabled by the Spirit to walk as he walked. Father, may you be glorified in all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as I said, we've, we've been working through Philippians chapter 2. And so last week we wrapped up the portion of the letter where he was addressing the concerns he had about the Philippians. That's the end of his looking at their immediate situation and the sinful uh, concerns that they had that he wanted to address. And then in next chapter, he will pick up with kind of general instructions for the Philippians as far as walking continually in faith. But in between where we find ourselves tonight, he takes what looks like a little break to tell the Philippians that he's not going to send Timothy yet, but he's sending Epaphroditus to them. And the focus of this portion of the letter as we look tonight is going to be on just three words that he says, which is honor such men. Honor such men. Now we want to look at what honor means. It's helpful for us to look in Scripture and see where the same word is used elsewhere. It's only used in four other places in Scripture, but we see that the, the exact meaning really comes through as we look. 
In Luke 7, verse 2, it says, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Highly valued. Luke 14, verse 8 says, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, it's used twice, but with the same meaning. In 14, uh, verse 8, it says, When you are invited, or sorry, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. The word is translated precious there and in verse 6, where it's quoting the Old Testament. Chosen and precious. So as we look in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, we see the meaning of honor as it is used here in our chapter is the concept of something precious, distinguished, highly valued, something that is beloved by us or dear to us. And I think if we're honest, we don't really have trouble knowing what honor means, what it means to honor something. We don't have that problem in our society. The problem that we have is who do we honor? To what do we give honor? That's the issue that we have. As we look at our society, we have a culture of celebrity. There's a well-oiled machine churning out heroes for the population to look to and to imitate. Ask any or almost any middle school classroom who Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, ask them who those guys are and you'll probably be met with silence. But if you ask the same group about Tom Brady, Benedict Cumberbatch, Ariana Grande, if you ask about those figures, you're probably going to receive a lecture fit for a college classroom. They know everything about them, everything about their lives. And we have entire industries that are built around giving honor to these celebrities, these hero figures these cultural giants, and it elevates athletes, singers, actors, whatever, to the level of heroes, to the level of examples. And so whatever we may think that we're giving these figures, I think we could certainly call it honor. As we look and we see ourselves envying their wealth and their fame, and we see our children envying their lifestyles and hoping to emulate it, So we don't have trouble with with what honor is. We have trouble with to whom we give honor. Unfortunately, if we look in Scripture, we see that we are giving honor to those least deserving of honor. Culture wants us to believe that, that we have this personal relationship, this highly valued, precious, distinguished relationship with these hero celebrity figures. So we buy jerseys so that we can belong to the same team. Or we stand in line for hours hoping to get an ironically impersonal signature on a book or a baseball. All these machines causing us to look towards these figures as our examples. And the theologically minded amongst us are not immune to that. Ask many seminarians who their favorite pastor is and you'll probably get a list of people that include John MacArthur and John Piper and Matt Chandler and these are these are all great figures of the faith to look to but the truth is that they're not your pastor 
Most of these men have never met those figures. They don't know you. They don't pastor you. They don't know the state of your soul. They may have a general love for the body, and that is commendable. But you elevate them to the status of heroes when they don't know about your marriage. You say they're your favorite pastor, but they don't know about the sin that you struggle with. They don't know about the nights you lay awake praying desperately for lost and unbelieving loved ones. So when we come to Paul's text, he tells us who we should honor, who we should look to, who we should emulate. He takes what looks like a diversion, kind of looks like an aside, something that we could skip over, but he tells the Philippians who he is sending to them and who he hopes to send to them soon. Like I said, it's tough for us to look at this and say, what can I take from this? What is instructive in this text for me today? So let's just skip over it, get to chapter 3, and get back to the godly living stuff. But if we did that, that would be a disservice both to Paul, who wrote it, and to the divine author of Scripture, who has a purpose for his word, that he has delivered it and preserved it for his saints, for their instruction in righteousness. So we don't skip over it. We look deep to see what it is that God would teach us from his word. And what Paul does here is he follows up the two sections where he addressed the Philippians' concerns for him and his concerns for the Philippians, he follows that up with an example for them to follow, something for them to look towards that, as we'll see later, is something really that points them onward to Christ. So he tells them of two men he would have them imitate. Starting in verse 19, we see, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. The first man that we're going to look at is Timothy, the second man Epaphroditus, whose name I guarantee you will not get tired of me saying tonight. So Timothy and Epaphroditus, first we're going to look at Timothy. Timothy has a genuine concern for the welfare of the Philippians. In verse 20, Paul says, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So first, Paul highlighted his genuine concern, his desire to come to the Philippians, but that he can't right now, as we've already talked. He's in imprisonment in Rome. But he wants to send someone in his stead, and he wants to send Timothy because Timothy really loves the Philippians. And Paul's great desire is to be cheered by news of them, right? He's sending this letter with some admonition, some exhortation to righteous living that they would turn away from some sinful activities in their midst, And he wants to be cheered to hear of their unity and obedience. He would love to hear of their growth in God's continual work of sanctification in them. Because he said in chapter 1 that he was confident that the one who began a good work in them will bring it to completion. He's confident that God is continuing to work in them, so he wants to be cheered of hearing of that. But he says he has no one like Timothy. And if we just take face value there, it kind of seems like there's just Timothy and nobody else around. Nobody worth their salt. But that's not what Paul's really saying. Because just after he talks about Timothy, he's going to give a glowing recommendation of Epaphroditus as he sends him back. So it's not that Timothy is the only one who, can, who cares about the Philippians, who has a genuine concern for them. What he's saying is that of one that he would send as his representative, he has none like Timothy. Recall how strong the bond is between Paul and Timothy. In just a minute, we're going to see how he says he served with him as a son with a father. So Paul 
is desiring greatly to be with the Philippians, but he can't. And so he's going to send them Timothy at some point, who is so like him, who is so like Paul that he is as a son. Someone to minister to the Philippians and encourage them and even exhort them in Paul's stead. Now, we don't have any commentary on why Timothy and not Epaphroditus in this situation, but I think we're going to get a little bit to it here as we go through and see that really they have two different purposes. But we know that Timothy is a suitable minister to be sent to the Philippians to care for them and to report back to Paul of their good conduct, godly character, and faithful living. But more importantly than what we've already looked at, Timothy was concerned, first of all, with the interests of Christ and not his own interests. So he had a genuine concern for the Philippians, but he was concerned primarily with the interests of Christ. Verse 21 says, For they, that is all of the others, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So now we're going to start to see some of the connections for this aside, this little travelogue, some commentaries call it. We're going to see the connections here to what he has written previously in the letter. Recall in chapter 1, one of the concerns that the Philippians had for Paul was that as he was serving in ministry in Rome and suffering for the gospel, that there were these so-called or, or supposed Christians who were going out and they were spreading the gospel, but to cause harm to Paul. That was their purpose. He says this in, in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So we see this picture of these ministers who are spreading the gospel. They're engaged in the gospel work, but not for the interests of Christ, but for their own interests. Timothy is not like that. These opponents of Paul were increasing themselves by proclaiming the gospel. But it wasn't about Christ, it was about them. They did it out of selfish ambition. They didn't want to make much of Christ. They wanted to make much of themselves. Let me give you a modern example of that. Not every pastor who is in ministry for money, for selfish reasons, for ambition, not every pastor that fits that is also a heretic. That makes things a little messy. There are people out there preaching a true gospel Though they themselves have not experienced the power of it, they themselves do not live with Christ as their primary interest. There are nationalized churches in some countries of the world where taking a job as a pastor is just about on the same level as taking a job at the DMV. You put in your 20 years, and you get your retirement, and it's a good life and a good retirement, and you're set. And there are some men in that context who have taken those jobs who maybe are not genuine believers, but they say the things that are in the scriptures and people in their congregations are actually getting saved. 
because they are hearing the word of God. That's what Paul's looking at in chapter 1. He's got these men who are motivated by self-interest, motivated by ambition, but he says that they are proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Make no mistake, if they were proclaiming a false gospel, Paul would let us know. He doesn't mince words about false gospels. False gospels and those who proclaim them are accursed. Or anathema, we might say. Damn. But Paul doesn't say that about these false teachers. And so we see these men who are serving with him in Rome, and they were proclaiming a genuine gospel, but they are ambitious and selfish. They're doing it for their own interest, not the interest of Christ. He's saying Timothy is not like that. Regardless of what good God does through a selfish man's ministry, and make no mistake, every man has some selfishness still in him. Regardless of what good God does through that ministry, it doesn't make a man who is concerned only with his own ambition more suitable to the office. It doesn't make a man more qualified just because God saves people under his ministry if his primary concern is raising up a platform for himself and making himself known, making himself great. Because we should be concerned first and only with the greatness of Christ and proclaiming the goodness of his gospel. Being not a heretic is not the only qualification of a pastor. But Paul is saying, Above all that, Timothy is also concerned primarily with the things of Christ. So Timothy is worthy of honor because his interests are the interests of Christ. He is a suitable minister for the Philippians. And he's proven that in his ministry to and with Paul. Paul says Timothy had served him in verse 22, served with him in the gospel as a son with a father. Verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. He's proven his worth as serving like a son with a father. John Gill, in his exhaustive commentary on the scriptures, had this to say about this particular verse. He said this, for as a son honors, obeys, and imitates his father, so did he, that's Timothy, honor the apostle." and give him all respect and reverence that was due to him on account of his office, age, and usefulness, and obeyed his orders cheerfully, going wherever he sent him, and doing whatever he bid him, and imitated him in his ministry, in his constancy, diligence, and zeal, having a true filial affection for him. He had a true affection for him, as a son does to a father. And this pattern of sonship is something that we see throughout Scripture all the way from the beginning. Adam is a son to God. That's what it says in the Gospels when we see the genealogy of Jesus. The last element is Adam, the son of God. And what does Adam do as the son of God? He exercises the authority given to him by his father. Dominion over creation. Bearing the image of God, he has the authority that God has given him. And we will see in this very obvious, I hope, way that what Timothy shows us as a son towards a father is given us perfectly in Christ who serves as a son to his father. I hope we will see that connection clearly. But let's move on to Epaphroditus now. Verses 25 through 28. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need, 
For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So Paul says, you know, I want to send you Timothy, but I'm not sending him yet. But I am going to send Epaphroditus. As we've seen before, Epaphroditus is a man who served Paul and ministered to him in his imprisonment. In his suffering for the gospel, Epaphroditus served Paul. And he, in turn, suffered in gospel labors. But like I hinted at before, we're going to see that Timothy and Epaphroditus serve two different purposes. Some commentators have spilled a lot of ink looking at the distinction between Timothy and Epaphroditus, as if Epaphroditus is some sort of consolation prize. Like, I want to send you Timothy, and I know that that's what you want, but I'm not going to send him yet, but you can have Epaphroditus, I guess. But Epaphroditus is not a consolation prize. He's a representative who is returning to them. Epaphroditus was the Philippians' representative to Paul. In chapter 1, we saw where Paul said, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He said he's thankful for the Philippians' partnership with him in the gospel, in his gospel labors. But that's a little confusing because the Philippians are not in Rome, except for Epaphroditus, their representative. Epaphroditus is the one who ministered to Paul in the Philippians' stead. He's the one who served with Paul. He was their representative. As we saw, Paul wanted to send Timothy as his representative, but he returns Epaphroditus to the Philippians, their representative to him. Paul desired to send Timothy, but he is sending Epaphroditus out of love. So he's not a consolation prize. He's not a secondary figure that, okay, I guess we'll just get him if we can't get Timothy. Instead, he's a beloved brother who they were concerned for because they had heard that he had nearly died from sickness. They were worried about him. And so Paul is going to send him back to them. And on top of this glowing commendation of his faithful ministry, Paul points to Epaphroditus' distress over the Philippians. He was concerned because they were concerned. He knew the Philippians had heard how sick he was, and he was worried that they were worried. We saw that with Paul. Paul, who was concerned over the Philippians' concern for him, wrote them a letter to encourage them, to give them hope that it was well with him. In the same way, Epaphroditus was concerned that the Philippians were concerned for him, and he wanted them to know he was well, and he was eager to return to them so that they could see him well. He was troubled over their troubles. Just as we had seen for Paul, Epaphroditus wanted the Philippians to be at ease, at peace, and to rest in the knowledge that he was secure. But what troubles had Epaphroditus experienced? Verse 30 says, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. In serving Paul as the Philippians' representative, he nearly died due to sickness. And that was not his worry. 
That's not what he was concerned with. He was concerned with the worry of the Philippians. Finally, Paul tells us, though, these two figures that we've seen, Timothy and Epaphroditus, Paul says, honor such men. And that's kind of what we've been building up to, honor such men. But, but I have a question before we get there. How could such men even exist? These men who have been described, Timothy and Epaphroditus, these things that Paul tells us are true about them, how could they even exist? Well, I think I probably have already given the answer away, but as we look at their Christian duty, we see that there's something very special about these two men that's special about us as well. The important thing to keep in mind about these men is that they are not worthy of honor because of their own merit, because who they are as people. They are worthy of honor insofar as they are like Christ, as they reflect the example of Christ, as they are enabled to walk in a Christ-like manner amongst the body. That is why they are to be honored, because of their Christ-likeness. They are men following an example. Christ is the example. Christ is genuinely concerned for his people. In John chapter 11, 33-36, we see this. When Jesus saw her, this is Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? Where is Lazarus, who had died? Where is he? Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. We see this example of, of Christ weeping over the death of his friend Lazarus. Now commentators have all kinds of things that they want to point out that Christ is weeping for. But we know that he is weeping for a friend who has died, who has had to suffer bodily death because of sin that is rampant in the world, because of the fallen stat status of creation. His friend Lazarus dies and lays in the grave. But he also sees the Jews that are with Mary and Martha who are crying out, and he sees their state. That without the intervention of the Son, they also will die and die eternal death. So Jesus weeps over that. And he sees the mourning of people who lose loved ones. And he weeps for that. He's genuinely concerned with his people and for his people. Just as we see that Timothy and Epaphroditus were. Christ is the obedient son. Luke 22, in the garden before he was crucified, Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He came to do the will of the Father. He was an obedient son. He is an obedient son looking to the needs and the interests of the Father and exacting them as the Father's representative. As our Savior, He took, upon, took our sins upon Himself and gladly went to the cross for the will of the Father. Christ is the obedient Son that we see an example of in Timothy. But Christ is also our dear brother and faithful minister Hebrews chapter 2, 11 through 18 says this, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Christ is the faithful brother. As we see Epaphroditus described as a brother and fellow worker and minister to the needs of Paul, Christ is a brother, a faithful minister, a faithful minister on our behalf, and he ministers to us even now from the right hand of the Father. And Epaphroditus, who was faithful nearly to the point of death, points us to the one who was faithful and obedient all the way to death. That is Christ and his obedience unto death. Paul already stressed this in Philippians chapter 2. He says in verses 5 through 8, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He withstood the shame of the cross, because of the great love he has for his people. Epaphroditus is a figure that shows us a willingness to put something before even a consideration for our own lives, but Christ is the fullness of the one who put a consideration for his people above a consideration for his life, a consideration of the glory of the Father before a consideration of his own life. And so by these men who Paul commends to the Philippians and to us, He shows us an example, an example set by Christ in men who were enabled by Christ to an honorable service. So we come to the question now of application. What does this mean for us? What what do we do with this knowledge? Okay, we should honor such men. So I have three applications. The first application is just a direct reading of Paul's word. Honor such men. As we talked about before, honor means to hold something as precious, as distinguished, highly valued. I think we have a pretty good grasp on what honor means. As I've said before, we just don't know who to give honor. And so the harder part of this this application is, who are the such men that we should honor? Who are they? Our first instinct might be to look directly at, for somebody like Paul. Paul is a man of great honor. But we don't have apostles anymore. So we get a pattern from Paul, a pattern that shows us Timothy and Epaphroditus. We might be tempted when we think of Timothy to be like, well, he's, he's basically almost an apostle. It's kind of an unattainable mark for us. But we also have Epaphroditus, a man who is like us, a churchman. And so we get an example in these two men of what type of man should be honored in the church. Both men demonstrate faithful Christian service in the body. That's what we should be looking for. Those who have Christ's interests as their primary interests. Those who are concerned with the the body, concerned with their welfare. We should be looking for that. Now we live in a a really blessed time. It's unlikely that any of us is going to nearly die for the work of Christ like Epaphroditus did. 
but we can act in such a way that it shows that we have the same desire to see the interests of Christ put above our own interests. What does this look like in the church? Well, it's not just going to the ends of the earth and spreading the gospel even at the risk of your own life. It certainly includes that. That is a good thing and a thing worthy of honor. But it's not just that. It also includes a lifetime of faithful ministry in a nursery. Someone who week in and week out diligently serves in a sometimes thankless way to care for our children. It looks like mothers and fathers who spend decades faithfully raising up children in the Lord. It looks like a a saint who is always diligent to be at the hospital caring for you and caring for loved ones when they are on their deathbed, when they are suffering. Honorable Christian service is all around us in the church, if we look. It's not just the men standing in the pulpit. It is the men and the women serving in in the church, within the body, in a Christ-like manner, enabled to serve honorably by Christ. Christians, mature Christians, living their entire lives unto Christ. That is the such men that we should look for. Men and women in our body who sacrifice their life for service within the church. The second point of application. We see and honor such figures, but we must also emulate them. In sports, we give all kinds of accolades. Give an MVP, best defensive player, best offensive performance. And we give these awards for two reasons. One, to recognize people for the great things that they've done. And two, to spur others on to similar actions. To cause others to want to do that. To want to achieve those things. And so when we look at the lives of these faithful men and women serving in our body, when we look at them, we should want to emulate them too. They are examples to us, us, both in how we ought to desire to live and in how Christ enables us to live within the body. Paul even directs believers to imitate more mature believers. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Hebrews 6, 11-12 says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Paul is directing the believers to imitate more mature believers, those who will inherit the promise. And then he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that brings me to the last point of application. As we look at these men and women who serve honorably in our midst, it should serve primarily to point us to Christ. Because he is the only all-honorable one. The deeds of honor that, that the men and women in our midst work is like Christ pointed out in Matthew chapter 5. He said, these good deeds are a light that shines forward so that others may glorify your Father. That is the purpose of the good deeds, and that is the purpose of this life of honorable service that we see in our text, that we look to them, see their good deeds, and know that it is worked in them by God, as Paul has already said in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus is the one worthy of the highest honor, 
And only through him are we made to work in an honorable way. Only by Christ working in us do we work in the body in a way that draws honor. And our honor that we receive is not our own, but it is for Christ. It is for God. The deeds which any of us do in our flesh are just sin. But if we repent of our sins, and if we believe in Christ, if we believe in him, he works in us to make us more like himself. That's what Paul is saying when he says, honor such men. Look to them and see their Christ-like character. And honor that. Consider that precious and dear, highly valued and distinguished. If we believe in him, Christ reforms us into his own image, making us faithful sons, faithful brothers, faithful ministers in the body. He will work in us this honorable service to the church in himself and by his power. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. O oh, great Father, we thank you that you have given us mature brothers and sisters to look to that we might see the example that you have laid for them and we may look to you. Let us be encouraged by the good deeds of our brothers and sisters, Lord, that we may also walk in those good deeds, that we may honor you with our lives. We may forsake selfish ambition but be concerned primarily with the interests of Christ. Father, we ask that you work this in us by the strength of your Son and in his name. Amen.